0: Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. Today I'm joined by Peter Warburton, the influential economist whose book Debt and Delusion was the first to anticipate the onset of the global financial crisis 10 years ago. This week he published a a new report in which he argued that we are entering a period of stagflation, by which he means a combination of low economic growth and higher and rising inflation. That may not yet be apparent on the surface. But it is going to have profound implications for both equity and bond investors. Peter, the starting point is I think there's a widespread perception amongst investors that even though uh, in, in normal inflation rates appear to be going up in certain places, it's not really a long-term problem. It's not even a medium-term problem because there'll always be big global factors that are stopping inflation taking hold. Um, I think you take issue with that assumption.
1: Yes, I do. I, I think it's gained respectability. Um, I think it has several elements to it. I, I mean, think one is um, the abundance of global supply. The idea is that there's plenty of everything and, and that actually this will keep weighing down on prices. Um, I think there's uh, also a sense that somehow that um, try as they might, the governments and central banks uh, won't find the way back to inflation. That almost nothing that they do, um, they will say, well, they've done so much. They've cut interest rates to the bone. They've expanded the central bank balance sheets. They've done various other uh, liquidity support operations and so on. And none of it has tipped us over decisively into inflation. So, um, if they've spent all their ammunition, then you know, presumably we can safely conclude that nothing now will. Uh, deliver that inflation. And the third one really is about technological disruption and the capacity uh, on the one hand of new models of distribution to destroy existing franchises and business models um, and on the other for robotics and automation to displace human labor and so on. So all of those themes, put together in many people's minds make a a, a kind of a, a slam dunk case for um, muted inflation, maybe in some cases um, progressively even f- further falls of inflation.
0: Those are with a, with a sort of long time scale will remember when uh, we used to worry a lot when unemployment fell to a certain level mm-hmm. because that tended to imply that the economy was acting near full capacity and unless something was done to, to rectify that, we would then get inflation coming through from, from that side mm-hmm. of, of the economy. Uh, and yet that is happening at the moment. I think it's fair to say unemployment mm-hmm. rates are very, very low. Mm-hmm and you've got some data that supports that. Um, But that that seems to be discounted by people as part of this uh, complex mind view, if you like, that you've just described.
1: Yes. Where I take issue with this consensus um, is is at a number of points. I think, first of all, um, we we always have this uh, difficult decision to make as to whether um, structural changes have already... Had their primary impact, um, and that this impact is now lessening. And the cyclical forces or the traditional dynamics of tightening labour markets, for example, um, that somehow they may have been in in abatement, but actually um, will return. Uh, And and so I'm putting greater weight, perhaps, um, on this latter idea that um, some structural forces um, have delayed the onset of inflation, um, but they haven't delayed it indefinitely or definitively. And the danger is now that uh, we have such a level of, of complacency reinforced by what we hear from central banks and eminent authorities um, that many people now are investing on the basis of inflation being self-regulating, that, that actually that Any inflation that appears sows the seeds of its own destruction, and therefore no policy action is required, no substantial increase in interest rate structure um, is expected, uh, because inflation is self-correcting.
0: Right. And one apparent uh, exponent of that view would be the governor of the Bank of England, as far as we can tell from what he's said so far. There may be no circumstances in which he will uh, want to vote for higher interest rates.
1: No, I think it's an extraordinary position for um, the government of the Bank of England to take. I'm glad to see a greater measure of dissent among the other members of the Monetary Policy Committee, but I think it's far, far too late. Um, I think the voices of dissent should have been gathering uh, crescendo uh, um, in 2013, 2014. I, 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 I think that... Unless you believe that interest rates will never need to return to rates consistent with a zero real interest rate or or a mildly positive real interest rate, unless you believe that that adjustment will never take place, then it surely is better to allow it to happen um, as soon as possible and and, and whatever negative consequences follow, then you can begin to understand them uh, and and think about other ways of, of addressing them. But the, this endless postponement uh, risks consolidating patterns of behavior, people who've never known anything else than incredibly cheap mortgages, uh, mm. and then being you know, violently disrupted uh, by normalization of policy that, that it maybe comes more quickly than they expect.
0: So as you say, the, the main thing that people should be worrying about is, is the complacency that, is, that official actions and, and, and words are encouraging. But on the other side of the Atlantic, I mean, we've got a slightly different story in the sense that we've got the Federal Reserve has started to raise interest rates. It's talking about uh, shrinking its balance sheet at last after years of QE, Um, but the markets don't seem to believe them. They don't think that's going to happen.
1: No, and in all fairness, the markets have been on the right side of the argument for the last four years. They consistently disbelieved the pace at which the Federal Reserve members, on average, thought that interest rates would move. Um, and the market you know has, has been uh, more right than the forecasts. However, it seems that um, this view remains very solidly held to the extent that it is assumed that the Fed will back down. It's assumed that the Fed will not follow through. And I think that's an increasingly dangerous and vulnerable assumption. that um, for Janet Yellen, um, who is an eminent labour market economist um, and who has been using her judgments about the condition of the labour market to guide monetary policy throughout her tenure, for, for her to be confidently raising interest rates now um, is telling you something. And, and, and I think uh, the danger, and particularly as the balance sheet is also begins to be shrunk, the danger is, is that... Um, The term premium, which has been crushed uh, by market optimism, um, will rebound.
0: So when you talk about the term premium, you're talking about what happens to long-term interest rates, essentially?
1: Yes, the premium of holding a longer-dated security.
0: Right. So let's be clear about what that actually means. That means that uh, if people are wrong about that, they're going to lose a lot of money, basically.
1: Potentially, yes. I mean, uh, we've seen um, how quickly the government bond markets can adjust. Um, we saw a dramatic adjustment about four years ago, just come to be known as the taper tantrum. Um, and we had perhaps a more modest adjustment that took place um, in late summer last year, with, a, with an element of optimism about the economic program of, of the incoming administration. But I think the level of, the extreme level of positioning in bond markets. Is what to me adds this element of danger and this potential for greater price adjustment and potential loss.
0: So what's happening is it's not just that people are not taking notice of what the Federal Reserve is Mm. saying is going to do but they're actually taking active bets Mm. against it happening essentially. They're betting that that, uh, yields will continue to fall to stay very weak. So it's not just that they're disbelieving they're actually actively taking positions on the other side of that.
1: No absolutely and I I think um, if we, you know, we just think of, of the sort of styles of investing, um, I think a number of us got our hopes up last year because it seemed as though um, you know, the value style yeah. of investing seemed to be coming back and seemed to be gaining ground. Um, but this year it's been swept away again by momentum and leverage. And um, despite the fact that labour markets are tighter now than they were last year, despite the fact that the Fed is further along and more confident in its actions than it was last year. Um, and we you know. obviously, we, we even have the European Central Bank making tentative noises uh, about reducing its um, its support and indeed struggling to buy the bonds that it wants to buy. Um, so um, it, the market seems to be deaf to the even gradual evolution of these forces.
0: That does see the one conundrum, though, which is one that you often hear people say, which is... If you're right, then we won't be repeating in terms of duration and uh, experience what's happened in Japan over the last 30 years, 20, 30 years, uh, where it has been the case that almost everything they've done has failed to generate significant levels of inflation. That may be changing now, but it has taken them a long, long time. So what is the difference between where we are in the, say, in the developed world and where Japan has been? Why won't it last as long as the Japanese uh, experience?
1: The short answer is to say that for the first eight, maybe even 10 years um, after 1989, um, I think there was a political institutional bias for monetary policy not to be allowed to bring the recovery that it it almost certainly could have done. In Japan. Um, In Japan. Yeah. Yeah that it was almost as though the old corporate model was being held under um, until it was definitely dead. Um, and so when we had, I think in 2001, the beginnings of, of Japanese QE, it was in the context of, of attitudes to risk and you know, banks' attitude to lending that were comatose, you know, so, so that behavioural responses had been crushed. You know over this long period and therefore and, and when Japan started QE it started it in arguably um, the least persuasive way um, and, and you know, the, the contrast with the response to the financial crisis uh, QE came early it came in varied forms it even involved private assets as, as indeed QE involves private assets in Japan today um, but the experimentation and the urgency of seeing economic response and change um, is poles apart between Japan and the and US, UK and, and Europe.
0: So let's just talk a little bit about what you think actually will now happen. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's the developing countries and there's the mm. emerging, emerging market, developing countries to think about. I think you're saying, what you're saying is that we are heading for war, what you've described as a period of stagflation. Perhaps you could define that and how that differs from what perhaps people could eventually think about stagflation thinking back to the 70s and, and 80s and so on.
1: Yes, we've done an exercise which classifies economic history really into four states. Reflation, where typically you have growth and inflation rising together within a positive overall nominal framework. The best of all, disinflationary growth, where, where growth trends are improving and inflation trends are stable or falling. Stagflation, which is the opposite, which is inflation trends are uh, arising in conjunction with output trends, stable or falling. And then deflation, which in various forms involves um, either inflation, either falling and growth falling, or indeed inflation and growth actually being negative. So in that framework, it's all about the dynamics of inflation and growth. Whereas in the 1970s and 80s, people thought about stagflation much more in terms of the the conjunction of high inflation and high unemployment. Um, We we think that uh, that's unhelpful for for today because um, there are other ways in which the labor market can be weak than to have a high unemployment. And and, uh, I think the depressed labor market share Uh, the lack of participation of real wages in what productivity growth that we've had. Um, These are all aspects of weakness um, that that help to qualify um, as in the US and the UK, we think marginally as having entered a period of mild stagflation.
0: So if one would sort of give an illustrative set of figures of what that means in terms of if we we think of normal GDP, Mm -hmm. we've got... Of X, how does that compute down to growth and inflation? Say, at some point in the next couple of years, I mean, what, what sort of what well, sort I of ratio the
1: the UK has restored um, a nominal framework of four to five percent, and within that, inflation is pushing three percent, um, and growth on a year year-on-year basis is still two percent, but likely to be significantly less than that on a rolling basis. So, so I, what I'm suggesting is that we retain the nominal framework around 5%, but the, the blend is going to be more inflation and weaker growth.
0: And is that also true of other developed economies and emerging markets? Is there a different picture there? Yes,
1: yeah, I, I think there's some very different pictures. In terms um, of the aggregate, numbers are obviously higher. Yes, like in the emerging I market. think um, under the influence of the US, which I'm, I'm unpersuaded that the US has um, the capability to break into a faster growth trend. Um, So I think at the moment, because its private credit trends are weakening and there are some specific examples such as the auto industry where um, there's likely to be negative pressure on industrial production, um, then then I think the US qualifies as having entered a mild stagflation. Um, and with that, advanced economies um, I think are teetering in, in the same state as well. Emerging economies, I think, are still, you'd still position them together in disinflationary growth. Um, and I think there are there are some quite bright spots. So, so the, the, the paradox about emerging markets is that their credit growth rates have fallen quite dramatically and are still falling, but actually the health of their of uh, their financial systems and economies is not giving the same grounds for concern.
0: Okay, so then if we look at that, then from that's from an economic perspective, from a, from an investment perspective, and let's stick to the UK for the moment, and to some extent the US. What's going to do well and what's going to do badly in this environment in terms of assets, investment assets? Well, I, I think
1: you know within the equity market, um, I would still incline towards the commodity and mining and basic materials space. Obviously. Um, this is not based on on a cyclical upturn in the housing industry, but I um, I think it's more about the valuation of the of the assets um, and obviously the potential I think for uh, companies to prosper in the context of, of, of a much weakened sterling. Um, so I think there are some different dynamics in the UK. Um, I'm not persuaded that the financials are a particularly attractive sector. You know, I, I think the, the difficulty that we still have is we don't understand yet the way in which the landscape certainly of retail banking, let alone commercial banking, is really going to break down. And there, there are some significant um, challenges, I think, that these banks still face, and they, they probably are too large, too many branches and too much investment in old ways of doing things.
0: So in equities, there's a bias towards that, but in terms of uh, equities and bonds, I mean, your scenario is not very good for bonds, basically. So these people who are betting the other way are, are probably going to be uh, confounded. Yes,
1: obviously this this will transpire, I think, much more as a, as a global phenomenal, phenomenon rather than a, um, a solitary domestic one, um, but no, I, I think the, the vulnerability Um, of conventional bonds to some reassessments of the the mix of inflation and growth, Um, but really also, I I, I think, in the extent to which overseas investors um, will participate in in the gilt market. I think the the UK had really been seen, I think as a sort of relatively tranquil place post the 2015 general election. Um, but I think in right. the, you know, the course of the Brexit vote and now an indecisive second general election, um, I think that, that will, um, you know, will give us a, a harder task to, to, to keep that overseas participation uh, at this very strong level.
0: This is a time when the government is talking about relaxing its fiscal stance and therefore issuing more debt. Uh, So this is (laughs) not a particularly uh, easy environment. Yes,
1: I mean, obviously there is a a slight paradox here in that um, it seems that Philip Hammond is strengthening his position in the cabinet um, and he's one of the driest members of the cabinet fiscally. So to the extent that that, uh, he might be more influential, um, it's harder to see that fiscal relaxation happening. But clearly, around the edges, concessions will have to be made by a, minor- a minority government.
0: Indeed. One thing we haven't touched on so far is China, the impact mm-hmm. China has. One of the arguments people use for why we're going mm-hmm. through this, this uh, deflation or disinflationary period is, the, is the, the arrival of China on the global economy and flood of cheap goods and all the rest mm-hmm. of it, um, and the fact that they're also spending vast amounts of money building infrastructure and, and, and developing a consumer economy. Is it part of your case that China is going to continue along this vein? Obviously, growth is slowing, but is, are you saying that the Chinese deflationary forces are going to abate somewhat?
1: Well, yes, and I, I think we already have a lot of evidence of that. I think China's focus is, is much more domestic, and I think the you know the, the development of the interior cities, um, I think, is critical to. You know their, their ongoing ability to grow. Um, I don't think that that um, the Chinese, if you like, export model um, sits in, in anything like the same place as it did, you know, ten or even five years ago. The Chinese succeed still in generating a trade surplus, but a lot of that is is just through import substitution rather than significant export success. So. Um, if you look, for example, at the price of imported goods coming from China into America, then um, that has shown a, a deflation rate of 2% in the last three years, but that's recently gone back to zero. So it looks again as though that, that you know, conceivably the US will be importing inflation uh, from China rather than deflation.
0: Just to sum up now, therefore, we we what you're seeing is a us entering a period of what you've defined as stagflation, and and uh, you're saying that this is really at odds with where the consensus opinion of investors, at least, is at the moment. Does that mean that we're heading for some kind of crunch point at some point? I mean, it could 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 the impact of reality meeting uh, consensus opinion be sufficiently severe to Cause us a big crisis, or is it just going to be a gradual evolutionary phase?
1: Well, I I think there are usually moments that crystallize opinion, and and I think at the moment what has focused opinion is the falling back of the oil price, and I say for some people the oil price, as it were, set us off on a more inflationary course, and so, to see the oil price falling back um, is indicative of a uh, retracement, but, oh, I, I, but yeah. I would rather see the partial recovery of the oil price really as a starting pistol um, of an inflationary race, and you know the the running is really being taken up, you know, by the ongoing impact of extreme margin accommodation, tightening labour markets, potential for supply disruption, which is very real and uh, not to say, you know, geopolitical concerns. So um, we shouldn't be looking at the starting pistol. We should be looking at, at the runners. And and I, and I think it's the incubation of inflationary process which is going to catch people out. You know, obviously, it has to show up in public places like the US CPI to have an impact. But, but I, I, I think there's a danger that, that we'll put too much emphasis on... You know, the way the oil prices have, have settled back down.
0: Peter, thank you very much. You have been listening to a Moneymakers podcast hosted by the author and professional investor Jonathan Davis. An archive of all our podcasts can be found on the website www.money-makers.co and also on iTunes and several other popular podcasting channels. We are an editorially independent business with a primarily educational purpose. If you are interested in investment and have enjoyed this conversation, I do hope you'll join me again for more discussion of current topics with leading professional investors. Thank you for listening.